0: Welcome to Africans Heal. We're here to foster a healthy African diaspora community and promote mental health awareness through storytelling and celebrating all cultures. We're here to heal together. Tupone Pamoja. Hello there, and welcome to the Africans Heal podcast. My name is Christine Kasakwa, and I'm your host here on Africans Heal. On this week's episode, I spoke with Lukoho Kasomo, who is the co-founder of the Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit. More on her story on today's episode. The Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit will be hosting a conference on September 17th through the 19th in Washington D.C. The theme of this year's conference is reimagining diaspora engagement through technology. Tickets are. On sale, and I'll also be sharing links in this week's episode notes as well as on the African Skill Instagram page. This is a great opportunity to network with other African millennial entrepreneurs if you're interested in business, as well as to meet other African professionals. Check out their website at Congolese Diaspora Impact get your tickets, and tell a friend to tell a friend. Your support is highly appreciated. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Africans Hill. My name is Christine Kasakwa, and I'm your host here on the Africans Hill podcast. On this week's episode, we are joined by Lukoho Kasomo, who's a foreign policy strategist, entrepreneur, and the co-founder of the Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit. She holds an MBA from Howard University and is passionate about empowering Congolese voices in the diaspora. She has lived in America and multiple African countries and is making a big impact on the future of the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Africa diaspora community. Welcome, Lukoho. Thank you so much. I'm super happy to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you and I can't wait to hear all that you have to share, your knowledge, your experiences. So thank you for doing this. Anytime. <laughs> so Lukoho, let's start by you just sharing with us where were you born and how did you end up in America? Sure. So As you already kind of mentioned, I am from
1: the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm Congolese. I was actually born there in the northeastern part um, in an area called North Kivu, specifically in a small town called Ranguba. And I immigrated to the U.S. when I was three. My dad was in California at the time, Los Angeles specifically, doing his graduate studies, as I'm sure a lot of Africans have similar story, you know, first gen kids where their dad or one of their parents was studying abroad and then they ended up immigrating to join their parents. So that's how I ended up in California and have kind of called California home ever since. So I tell people um, I often identify as a Congolese Californian yeah. <laughs> in addition to, I guess, being a Congolese American. But I grew up here in California and have lived in Southern California, Northern California. Um, so yeah. That's how I got here.
0: How has growing up in America affected how you see yourself, your identity as an African woman, as a Black woman, as a Congolese woman, and who you are today? Wow,
1: that's a that's a great question. It's definitely been an evolution. So when my parents came to the states, we were living in Los Angeles at the time, in Pasadena, and. We lived in a pretty international, I guess, community because my dad was a foreign exchange student. And so the graduate housing that we were living in was, you know, comprised of other families that were also foreign exchange students. So we went from there to then moving to, you know, Riverside County to Orange County, which were not really diverse. So I grew up primarily in Orange County, California, and oftentimes was, you know, amongst a small handful of black students in all my classes definitely, you know, amongst maybe the one or two when I was taking like honors classes and things of that sort. So when I was growing up in Orange County, my kind of primary focus, I want to say from probably like the ages five to like 17 was really just about like assimilating into the culture. And, you know, you grow up in Orange County, you're you're a Black woman, you're a Black girl there aren't a lot of Black people. So a lot of it was just trying to figure out like how to be American, as American as possible, I guess, to not draw attention to the fact that, you know, I'm African. At the time, Africa didn't really have like its thing that it has right now. Like it was not at all popping to tell people that you are African. And then it also didn't help because my family, where we're from, um, we had a lot of Congolese people. I grew up in a Congolese community, but my family is from the eastern part of Congo. So not a lot of Congolese folks who are here in LA or who are in Orange County are from that area. So language-wise, like I came to the state speaking Swahili. I pretty much stopped speaking Swahili when I was like six-ish because outside of my home, I mean, my parents were really concerned about us learning English. And also, I just didn't have any peers that spoke Swahili, whether they were from, you know, Eastern Africa or from Congo. And so language-wise and just kind of culture-wise, I was trying to be as American, quote-unquote, as possible, but, you know, still was in my community. So I would kind of as we say, code switch, right? Like I knew when I would go into the Congolese community and, you know, you have your like traditions and your norms and things of that sort. Like how do you greet your elders? But with my friends, I tried to be as, (laughs) as American, as whatever people thought, like I should be as someone who they see as being a black woman, but it doesn't really help when, you know, I, you have this name, Things are just so different. People don't know where to place you because at that point, their kind of understanding of Black people that aren't Americans. It was Mm -hmm. like, are you Jamaican? Are you Caribbean? (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm not Jamaican. Um, So explaining the folks that I was from Central Africa was a really hard concept until, probably want to say like my senior year of high school, I kind of started to like rethink my African identity. And it wasn't really until I got to college, I would say like, my sophomore kind of junior year of college when I was at San Jose State that I started to like really shift and kind of develop um, more of my African, you know, connection. And it was there because there was a huge African population that I started to realize like, oh, I don't really have to hide from being Congolese or hide from being African. And so fast forward to today... Um, The person who I was growing up in Orange County, I don't think, you know, 15, 17, 20 years ago, I would have ever imagined that I would be doing the work that I'm doing now where I'm pretty integrated into the Congolese community and also a really big like supporter and advocate of the African diaspora.
0: And I definitely agree about San Jose State. I think seeing the Nigerian Student Association there and how proud they were of their culture and how inclusive they were also made me rethink my own identity. So let's fast forward. um, Like you talked about San Jose State and you embracing who you are as an African woman. How did that later on influence your passion on fostering and empowering the Congolese voices in the diaspora?
1: Sure. So It was really at like San Jose State that I became really involved in the Black community. So African, you know, anyone who was essentially identifying as being Black. And it was where I really started to think more about my identity and about the fact that it wasn't like this hindrance, I guess, to how I move in the world that I can embrace myself. And I can also come to a place where... The things that I kind of had to like forget or I chose to like ignore um, don't have to stand in the way of me doing work for my community. So what that means in this situation, like language, right? Language is a huge part of pretty much any immigrant community. But I think especially for us Africans, language is really um special and unique because we often speak languages that are not, you know, they're popular to the areas that we come from, but it's not like Spanish where you, if you grew up and you're of Mexican descent, you can find other people who speak Spanish. It may not be the same Spanish, but you still have more kind of resources and abilities to maintain your language in the U.S., whereas Swahili is one of those things, like <laughs> 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 not that many folks. I mean, a lot of people in Africa speak Swahili, but when you start going outside of the diaspora, outside of Europe. Yeah. And then you come to the U.S., like there are pockets of, you know, Swanglophone folks who, who speak Swahili. So it's really hard to kind of find that aspect. Um, so at San Jose State, I really started to think about what I wanted to do in the future because I was studying political science And I knew that I didn't necessarily see myself being in like local government per se or, you know, doing anything that was like U.S. oriented. I knew I wanted to go back um, into African affairs or go back to Africa and get into African affairs and do some advocacy work for Africa. And so that's how I kind of started making this transition and thinking about like, okay, well, what can I do for my community with the tools that I have?
0: So is this what later on led you to starting the Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So after I graduated college, I actually ended
1: up in Washington, DC, which if you're a political science student, or if you're a foreign policy student, or even like economics, anything in that realm, that's like, the goal, the dream is to end up in DC or New York, because that's primary where, where it happens. So I left California with these big goals, like I'm going to go work for the UN, or I'm going to work for the AU or somebody, you know, the IMF, one of these foreign agencies. And oddly enough, I found it very challenging as an African to break into the Africa space. And part of it was like, I went to a school that didn't necessarily have those strong ties and connections. I mean, my political science program was like pretty well connected locally and in other areas, but foreign affairs wise, that just wasn't really San Jose's strong point. And then also just like, for whatever reason, there's this weird hesitancy that I found when I would apply to different jobs where, you know, they're like, well, we want somebody who like, was able to live in Tanzania for a year or who, you know, was able to do X, Y and Z and spend time traversing in Africa. And for a lot of us who are immigrant kids, we're like, I was working jobs and trying to just make it and support myself through this program. So mm-hmm. ain't nobody has time to just like pick travel. up <laughs> travel or the resources to be like, I'm going to spend a year and move back somewhere that isn't, you know, my home country. So I found that to be very challenging. And I think just also people doubting that when you are African, that you're able to work in the Africa space, but they say smart and strategically. I don't really know what that means, but essentially without you being biased, I guess, um, as an African, but the reality is like, You know, a lot of these organizations do some interesting and shady things and they just don't want the accountability of people who are actually from the region to call them out. And so that's where I found a lot of Africans were just not, you know, considered or hired or brought on because it would definitely be a conflict of interest to some of the things that some of these orgs do. And fast forward kind of like 10 years, well, almost 10 years, I spent seven years in D.C., And I was kind of in the Africa space for like 10 years, just doing diaspora work um, in undergrad and, you know, being very active as like an activist. I finally just came to the point where I was like, I'm tired of waiting for somebody to give me the opportunity for me to speak about Congo or waiting to go to an organization that's going to finally like, oh, you're Congolese. Well, let's give you a moment and just decided, like, we're going to just create it ourselves. And so that's how the Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit was kind of born. I'm a co-founder. I have another co-founder and um, one of my friends who is a a founding member. And we've all known each other for probably more than five, six years. Um, And we just, as Congolese professionals, we were really like excited to... Meet other like-minded Congolese professionals, and so we just started hosting events in the East Coast. It was it started in New York with the dinner, and then the dinner kind of evolved to brunches and lunches. And one day, I was like, "We need a summit, and we need to show people that we can do a conference for us, by us, to talk about the issues that really impact our community."
0: And so, what does the summit do? And do you have any events coming up this year? Sure. So the summit is really
1: just it. It's a platform to amplify the voices of primarily millennial and Gen Zer um, Gen Zers of Congolese <laughs> descent who are in business entrepreneurship, um, public service, who are also in like the creative field. So basically, just self starters who are enterprising on in their specific in, you know industries and trying to create change within the Congolese community. So we primarily are geared towards folks in North America, but we also have created a pretty large network that has, you know, people in Europe. We have people in Congo as well, people um, in Asia and Latin America. So our first summit, we had it in 2019, where we had over 120 uh, Congolese folks from all over the world that came. And we had four panels and basically it was... Congolese folks who spend a good amount of their time kind of in between Congo, the U.S. or other places in the West. And these are folks who just saw different problems or different issues that were happening in Congo and decided to start their own um, entities, their own organizations to solve those issues. And so we wanted to create a summit to basically inspire the next generation or people who are in the states who want to potentially go back and do that work like here are examples and this is the way to do it. So we've did that first event since then we've done several other events that have hosted congolese folks uh just to be like let's give you some more exposure mm-hmm. both in the US and abroad so that other people know of like the talent base that's kind of coming from this congolese community. And our next event is going to be this September in Washington DC and we're not just for Congolese people. So anybody can come. Anyone is welcome to attend. I think it's also a great opportunity for other Africans in the diaspora who are curious about how to do this work and how to engage their community to participate and see the work that we've been doing.
0: Yeah, the work you're doing is really important, especially, like you said, for some of us who maybe have lived here for such a long time. It can feel really intimidating trying to think of even investing in Africa, let alone like moving back to Africa, which we'll talk about um, later on in the episode. So was the Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit your first venture also as an entrepreneur? It was not.
1: I tell people (laughs) that I am a serial entrepreneur. I've kind of been like the kid who has always had entrepreneurial ideas. I joke my first idea, I think it was 10 or 11 and I wanted to start a magazine. Um, for young girls of color. And so I remember having one of my friends and we were trying to figure out like, how do we start a magazine? And it was like the summer project. It didn't go anywhere, but that was kind of my first earliest moment of thinking about how do I start something? Mm-hmm. Um, But from there in in grad school, when I was doing my MBA, I started a baby blanket company called Kumia Do, And so that was kind of my first go at trying to figure out like, how do you launch a potentially like a an online store um, geared towards selling goods that are creatively oriented with a twist from Africa for mothers and babies. So mm-hmm. that happened. It didn't quite launch. But I feel like to be a good entrepreneur, you kind of have to go through a little bit of failure. I've yeah. also done real estate investing, and I'm doing some more of that. And then, yeah, the Colonial Diaspora Impact Summit has been like, my next, I guess, foray into kind of the Africa space.
0: And um, you mentioned that you've hosted events through the Congolese Diaspora Impact Summits and you've had more than 120 people attending. How did you navigate funding and how do you continue to to navigate funding and white spaces as a Black woman? Sure. So when we had our first event in 2019, um,
1: I can tell you that everybody was convinced that this was not going to happen. And by everybody, I mean the naysayers. So not necessarily the people who were supportive and who thought that this was a cool idea. But overall, we heard a lot of folks outside of like our, you know, supporters that were like, you want to host a summit just for Congolese people, by Congolese people. No one's going to pay for that. No one's going to come and attend. And at the price point that you're charging, like, it's not going to (laughs) happen. And so I was, like, just dedicated and convinced to kind of prove folks wrong because it was a very different model. You know, a lot of African events, people purchase tickets in person where, you know, it's at through the community. So you're like selling tickets, whether it's like after church or a community event of sorts. Mm-hmm. And ours, we were like, we're going to do it completely digital. So 100% of our tickets were sold on Eventbrite. 90% of our funders were actually Congolese, which was another kind of amazing thing. The majority of our spo- yeah, our sponsors were Congolese as well. We had our food catered by um, a Congolese woman who was a registered, like a licensed catering, you know, entity in New York City of all places. So we were really just like, regardless of, you know, the first event is not going to be perfect, but we wanted to really dispel a lot of the myths or the ideas that this can't happen. So we Mm -hmm. did it. And funding, we were just... Really fortunate that towards the end, we had a lot of people who were willing to take a chance on us in terms of like our sponsors and in terms of um, even like non Lus people who are just like, we see the vision and we see what you're doing. So we got some pretty big names who, you know, they've requested to be anonymous. But Mm. if I were to say these names, it's like, wow, (laughs) how did y'all make that connection? Um, But they put in a lot of, you know, funding for us as well. So it's definitely difficult being a Black woman and just Black founders in general. If you have an entity or an organization, I think funding is the most difficult thing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I forget all the stats, but when you look at the stats in terms of um, black entities and organizations and the funding levels that they're able to create, you know, most black owned businesses fail or end up closing within a year because of various, you know, issues or just like lack of resources. So for us, to have been able to like, we came out of our conference and we did not owe anyone anything. We we're able to pretty much pay for all of like our major costs um, just through our fundraising. And then we had, you know, leftover that we were able to like give back to the team who had also contributed. Um, so that was major, you know, just being able to see like, how do you budget and be a good steward of the purse? Mm-hmm. Um the other thing, the pandemic happened shortly after. So we had our first summit in the fall of 2019. And then, as we know, <laughs> 2020 came around. Yes. And it was Corona. <laughs> the coronavirus was here. So that also ended up being somewhat of a blessing in disguise because we were getting a lot more demand for more events. But the fact that you know, we can't do anything in person. So everything that we did in 2020 and even now into 2021 has been virtual and you pay however much you pay for Zoom, but it's allowed us to provide like free opportunities for people to come together and to speak and to still maintain those networks and connections and to be excited Mm -hmm. without having to like expend a lot to do that. So that's been a bit of a blessing in disguise for us.
0: Yeah. So people don't have to travel too far to come to the conference. So you're getting more people attending and spreading the word. Yeah. You mentioned that you have lived in other African countries. Which countries were those? Sure. So obviously I was born in Congo. Don't really remember that living experience since I left
1: uh, very early, but I've lived in Ghana and I've lived in Kenya. And why Kenya and Ghana? So when I was in Kenya, after graduating from my MBA, I just knew I wanted to go abroad. Um, Also at the time, politically, you know, it was the Trump era. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I just kind of saw that, you know, being Black in America just was very taxing. I'd also just spent from 2011 to like 2016 working in U.S. politics. And at that point, like finishing grad school, having had those experiences, I was really exhausted. just being on that grind and just, you know, feeling like I was doing work to um, strengthen and impact communities of color, but not really seeing a lot of like the output. So I had said, or I thought in 2018, like, I'm, I'm, this is my Blexit. Like, it's time for me to leave. Um, I'd been, you know, fantasizing slash kind of imagining wanting to go to Africa and was able to get a role with a company. And so I packed my bags in 2017 and found myself in Nairobi without any kind of idea as like what I was going to walk into. And so I ended up showing up at this company and very quickly realized like this may not be the experience for me, but I loved Nairobi. It just was not the work experience that I necessarily wanted to have on the continent. And so that, you know, it was a hard decision to walk away pretty, you know, shortly after arriving. So after like five or six months, I decided like, this is not going to work out and was able to then get another opportunity in Ghana, which was amazing, where I worked for a Ghanaian American conglomerate. So it was kind of a night and day experience to go from being on the continent and working for, um, an organization that wasn't, you know, made by Kenyans or Africans to then going to Ghana and working for an organization that was made and run and pretty much supported all by Ghanaians.
0: So how long were you in Ghana? I was in Ghana for six months. Okay. And then you came back to America after that? Yeah. Okay, so you pretty much live between America and Africa.
1: Well, I wouldn't say pretty much, not yet. Maybe okay. uh, you know, once I make my next return, whenever that is.
0: I, I want to say I had it gave me a taste of what it's like mm. to go back home and what could be. Given that you've lived, you've actually gone to um, Kenya and Ghana as an adult, and you've gotten to see what it's like as an adult. What do you think Africans can do to help dispel all the stereotypes? And as we were talking and mentioned before, the skewed perceptions we have about Africa, especially those of us who've been away from the motherland for such a long time? Let me tell you,
1: I am. So I'm very guilty of this. And I want to say this first, because I think as Africans, we kind of have this idea of what Africa and also Africa is like over 50 countries. But for some reason, when you're African and you're from the continent, you're like, I'm born here. I know, I know my people as a whole, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I know my people. I know what I'm going to get into. I didn't realize until I moved, you know, first starting in Kenya that my experience growing up in the US had really impacted how I viewed the continent, how I viewed, you know, the continent's um, capacity and capabilities, even though I would say, obviously, I'm way more, you know, aware and educated than your average Joe, average American Joe walking down the street. Like, I'm not sitting here believing all the stereotypes, because even prior to moving, I had traveled to the continent, I've been to other places. So I've seen it with my own eyes. But I think there were still things that, you know, for one, Even though I was thinking about like, I'm moving to Africa as my Blexit, in the back of my mind, I was like, can I really adjust to living in Africa without the trappings or the comfort of the U.S.? And then, I, you know, I show up in Nairobi and I'm like, well, I can order ice cream to be delivered to my house in Nairobi. What am I really (laughs) missing? (laughs) What am I really missing or Mm -hmm. worried about? It's really just understanding that life is different. It's not, you know, the same kind of thing that you're you're experiencing in the U.S. Like, just like when you move from one state to another, your life is not going to be completely the same. There are going to be things that are different. Like I know when I moved from California to DC, it was a culture shock. And I, you know, I grew up in America and we speak the same language. So (laughs) for me, it was having to reorient my mind and, and understanding like there is talent in Africa, there is opportunity to, you know, create sustainable and high like profit um, running companies. There's also the ability for women to thrive in Africa and to go back. Um, and I say Africa, I know kind of as a whole, even though I've only experienced, you know, a little bit of West Africa and East Africa, but I truly believe this overall for the continent, in spite of what we often see and what's publicized to us, that the opportunities kind of outweigh the challenges that are often communicated to us.
0: Yeah. And thank you for doing the Congolese Desperate Impact Summit, because I think through that and you traveling and your experiences, you are enlightening us, you know, to move back home, to invest back home and to travel more, to see the other countries in Africa. Like you said, Africa has like more than 50 countries, but as Africans, sometimes we forget that. We only think of like where we're from and we forget that it's such a huge continent with so many different countries and so many resources and so many things to offer. So I'm guilty of that too.
1: Honestly, you know, it wasn't until I started traveling to other African countries also that I started to realize like there's common threads that we have as a continent overall, I would say, you know, for any African community that you show up in or any African country or folks that you meet, you know, they're going to be things about being very much community oriented, family oriented, you know, really about being, um, involved and integrated with the culture. But then there are also things that were very different. I mean, I can say I had a lot of stereotypes about other places in Africa that I hadn't necessarily um, had a lot of familiarity with. So for example, I remember um, I had one of my girlfriends from Business school for my MBA program, she's Ethiopian. And she invited us. She was like, you know, my family has a home in Addis. Um, you all are more than more than welcome to come. And when I was like, I'll come, she was very surprised. Mm-hmm. But I decided to go to Ethiopia. And when I was having this conversation with my parents, my mom was just really confused. Like, why would you go? You're not <laughs> Ethiopian. Why... <laughs> what are you going to Ethiopia what? for and not Congo? And I'm like, cause Even though I am Congolese and, you know, I think the world of Congo, there's so much more that we need to see and we need to understand outside of where we're from. And she was just it was so hard for my mom to really understand, like, why Why are you going there (laughs) (laughs) by choice? Right. Like I've been to other places in Africa because of my grad school program, but For you to choose to go somewhere else, it was just very perplexing to her. Like, why would you go? And then for me, I mean, growing up in the States, I always kind of felt like there are certain African communities that band together. You know, West Africans, obviously Nigerians have their thing, but I have a lot of Nigerian friends, a lot of West African friends and have been able to just kind of like, you know, find Um, community in those spaces, also in the East Africa space because of that Swahili kind of connection. But Ethiopians were always just very like on their own. Yeah. Yeah. They almost seemed a bit isolating. And I had no idea, you know, anything really in terms of like, how do Ethiopians feel about the rest of the continent? Because from my experiences with the diaspora, they seem to be very just Ethiopia-focused and almost like not as if they're African. And so it was very weird to go to Addis and to see that they're very like, you know, Black liberationists. They're very much like we are African. We are not an other. We are here for the cause. We're here for the culture. We're here for the people. And I needed that to be able to just reset my mind Mm -hmm. and to reset some of the ideas that I had formed around you know, unfortunately around the community from my experiences.
0: So let's talk about your education experience. You said you got your master's from Howard University. What would you share as, what was your experience attending an HBCU as an African woman? And I'm just asking this for someone who may be considering attending one, maybe for grad school. And how can you compare that to San Jose State? How was that What were the differences and what made you choose to go to an HBCU for grad school?
1: So actually, Howard had always been on my list. Uh, Even when I was an undergrad, I was like, Howard, you know, it's just as I'm like growing up in America and trying to, I guess, integrate into the black community and learning, you know, I'd watch a different world. I'd watch school days and all these different things that have like black um, iconography. And so for me, Howard was like the thing that would come up in so many movies and just So many discussions, you know, anytime you meet someone who's like a great, it was like they went to Howard. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of always in the back of my mind. Like if I'm going to go to an HBCU, it's going to be Howard, you know? Yeah. It was like that, that, that's it. It's Howard or Bust. So obviously... Going through undergrad and not going to HBCU, when I was thinking about doing grad school, I was in DC and I was like, well, this is my time. This is my moment. And I kind of just knew I only applied to Howard. I didn't actually apply to any other universities for the MBA program. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm in DC, this is gonna happen. So I applied to Howard, I got in and grad school was definitely an adjustment. It was difficult just for me to, I guess, really get on board with being a student again, because I had been working for so long. Mm-hmm. But I will say the HBCU experience, like I was very glad to have that moment and to just be in a space where. For once, it was never about, oh, you're here because you're black or anyone doubting your intelligence because of being, you know, black. And just being around other, you know, really talented, hardworking, intelligent, like enterprising, you know, black folks who I know in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to be reading about all my classmates in Forbes and different places, mm-hmm. um, was like just a great experience. And just walking on the campus and seeing, you know, the grad school was on the same campus as the undergrad. So every day you're on campus, you, you walk kind of through the undergrad a bit to get to the grad school and seeing folks who chose deliberately to go to an HBCU when we know predominantly white institutions offer oftentimes black students, you know, pretty large packages or scholarships or different things to attend their institutions. So for me, it was monumental to think, Here's an institution that has been around for over a hundred years and has still is still here in in the midst of DC changing, yeah. in the midst of DC becoming more gentrified. Like Howard has been a beacon on the hill um, and the Mecca, as we say. For black folks to continue, you know, their education and to find community. A lot of things were not perfect, I will say, is very different than attending a predominantly white school where you're just kind of used to. You know, things being a little bit easier. Financial aid gets you quicker. Yeah. Um, the bureaucracy and administration of going to San Jose, I never had any problem, even though I know some people at San Jose did, but I never had any issues um, in terms of getting my classes or getting my uh, financial aid distributed. So going to Howard was a bit different and having to learn how to like navigate those type of things. Um, and just the fact that, you know, sometimes you'll have to like balance Somebody may not want to have a conversation with you, or they may be having a bad day. Oh, (laughs) like what is the attitude? And I gotta kind of have to like navigate. Um, Customer service isn't quite there. Oh my goodness! uh, You know PWI, but at the end of the day, I will say that. My I don't think I could have survived with the things that I end up experiencing in my grad school program if I hadn't been somewhere at Howard, because they truly, you know, cared and wanted to make sure that I made it through the program and that I was able to, like, you know, complete the role, complete the job that I I came there for.
0: Mm-hmm. So to recap, you're born in Congo, you moved to America at three, you live in California in multiple counties in the South. You come to Northern California to go to college. You go to Africa and then you go back to DC for grad school. You start the Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit, and you've done a lot. And congratulations on accomplishing all that. But in the midst of all that and just navigating life. How did this affect your mental health, and how did you cope, and how do you continue to cope today? Sure,
1: so just a slight adjustment. So actually, I went from California to d c then d c to Africa. okay, okay, then back to the states. Okay. and who knows where we'll be next, but <laughs> <laughs> um, mental health has definitely been one of the more um challenging things, I guess to navigate, and just thinking about now that I'm an adult, who's been through therapy, who's, you know, prioritize or tried to prioritize my mental health. I think as a lot of African immigrant families, we experience trauma and we experience a lot of, you know, just mental health issues that we're often not able to identify because there's not really that like official language. Like try to ask people like what what is depression in Swahili? (laughs) How would you Mm -hmm. explain that to somebody that you're depressed or you have anxiety? I think on the continent, there are kind of somewhat understandings of this but it's also it's a very different situation when you're back home right because you're constantly in community there even though life is tough i think that there's more access to be around folks that will talk to you whether it's you know through the elders in your community or maybe for folks who are more into like traditional spiritualism there's that there's your church there's more avenues to kind of find those support that i have found um, on the continent, whereas for a lot of us, when we move here, we end up finding ourselves isolated from that. You may live near an African community, or you may live, you know, near your community, but it's not the same. Where people can't just drop into your house, people are no longer just checking up on you, you know, on the regular. Mm-hmm. You are kind of isolated into your own immediate family spaces, or if you're someone who came here older and as a student, you know, you're trying to navigate all these things alone. So for me, the hardest thing growing up was trying to like navigate through the trauma of being Black in Southern California and just the expectations of what... You know, when people see me, what they were assuming my story was like. Everybody kind of sees a black person, and they're like, "Oh, you know, you you come from a broken home, or you've gone through X, Y, and Z things." And that's not the case. My parents were prior, you know, my parents were married. They prioritized education, being very proper, very smart. (laughs) Yeah. So, trying to figure out how to explain that to other people was very challenging. And then going into corporate America, I realized I was not. Adequately prepared because my parents come from a background where you obey the authority and you never question the authority. And you should be happy that you have a job or that you're employed and that you're bringing resources. So why would you complain? So these things that I'm now finding, you know, in my career or navigating, like I'm at work and I'm stressed and I don't know how to talk to my boss who's white and tell him that their expectations of me versus. My non-black colleagues are different. How do you even communicate that? It was really hard. And it's still difficult sometimes walking into spaces and not knowing like, how do I have this conversation without seeming as if I am the angry black woman or mm. you know, it being coded or misconstrued for something else when it's just like, this is what I'm experiencing, this is where I need help and whatnot. Um, It wasn't until my first kind of long... The first job that I had, I worked there for four years. And by year two, I realized like I was really struggling and I decided to go to therapy. It was like my third year that I actually really started going to therapy to kind of just deal with the work stresses and figuring out how to balance all the different things that I was going through. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until... You know, I did therapy in that aspect, but again, working, having coming, coming back from Africa and finding myself again in like another really chaotic workspace. This was the first time that I actually intentionally decided to seek out a Black therapist And that was, I mean, it really changed a lot of things just in terms of being able to like talk to somebody who wasn't going to gaslight me and who understood, you know, without even saying like, you're experiencing these things because you're a black woman. So I'm going to honor that and hold space for that. And knowing that that was the root of a lot of the issues, it's you have to show up in a different way because you're black. So let's just Address that and tackle that head on. And we don't need to, like, oh, well, maybe it's this, or maybe mm-hmm. you're, you know, yeah. maybe you're seeing it from this way, or maybe it's that way, which I've experienced with other therapists. And I never really thought about how a therapist's own personal experiences can impact how the work that they do. You know, most of the work that we do, whether we're talking about medicine or in my job, foreign policy, it's often shaped or has been run by how white people, how the West, you know, navigates in those spaces. And so when other people are coming through and they're like, this is great, but this is not the real issue, or these are the things that I'm experiencing, is very foreign to them because the world, you know, they operate under the assumption that this is happening for them or this is what they've experienced. It should be that way for everybody else.
0: Yeah. When that's not the case at all. Yeah. Yeah. So knowing what you know now and having all the experiences you have now, what would you, what would you tell your younger self? What advice would you give to young Lukoho? Oh, that's a...
1: I was trying to think about this one for a while. Like, what advice? You know... On this side, it seems so easy to be like, don't worry about it. Everything's going to fall into place when it falls into place. But there are a lot of times, even from (laughs) undergrad, I'm like, I have no idea how this is going to pan out, how this is going to shake up, how this is going to work. I don't know how I'm going to explain these things to my family. I don't know. Uh, Now, what I would tell my younger self is don't be afraid to embrace, you know, the different and to embrace that piece of yourself, like latch onto your identity and go with it. And don't let the naysayers who are laughing at you because you wanted to wear, you know, um, African clothing in high school get at you because who knows in 15 years they're going to come around and they'll be the main ones. Like, let's go back, return to Ghana. Um, So it's all going to make sense. But really just lean into who you are.
0: Yeah. And I think the another takeaway that I got from your story is to embrace change Mm -hmm. and to be okay moving to different places and experiencing life from different dimensions and not just getting so comfortable and cozy in our little bubble, that life is more than just our little bubble. Absolutely. One thing that I kind of forgot to mention when you were asking me about my experiences,
1: like navigating the continent and how that has been as an African, what I meant to say before I kind of went on that tangent was I recommend every, any, anyone and everyone who identifies as being Black to really travel to the places in which we show up and that is the continent and that is Latin America, the Caribbean because I don't think you really understand you know the things that connect you and the things that make us different and the the challenges that we have experienced until you show up in other places where people look like you mm-hmm. but they, they may speak Spanish or they might speak Portuguese or they you know speak a completely different language and that has been I think the biggest like Learning lessons and the moments where I've had the, the most, like, ah, aha, kind of um, things that I've experienced, uh, experienced. So, for example, I went to the Dominican Republic for the first time earlier this month. And it was kind of trippy just seeing people who looked like me, but obviously they were speaking Spanish. And we know why they're in the Dominican Republic, you know, yeah. via slavery and being brought there by the Spanish, by the Spaniards. And just kind of seeing, like, oh, you all eat plantains. You guys use, you know, cassava. This is very similar to style cooking that we do. But also there are different things in your community in terms of the anti-Blackness. And that is because of where you all were, you know, brought to and the different conditions that you were subjected to. So I tell folks, I'm kind of on that mission. Like, I want to go, you know, to every single community where Black people show up. In the world, we'll see if we can make it happen. But I'm like, I want to go to Brazil. You know, I want to go to Colombia. Um, <laughs> you name it. I'm I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to showing up in, in those places to just continue to understand my community more.
0: Keep doing what you're doing. We definitely need more people like you out there educating us, empowering us and inspiring us. So if others were who are listening were thinking of maybe attending the Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit or talking to you professionally, where can they find that your information?
1: Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, if you look up Blue Coho Kasomo on LinkedIn, you'll find me obviously the spelling will be on this episode. So if you're looking up there, uh, people send me you know notes all the time and I'm super happy to connect with folks and just kind of talk about their different um, ideas and things of that nature. Also, you can find the Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit both on Instagram and on Twitter at Congo, C-O-N-G-O. DIS Summit. So D-I-S-U-M-M-I-T. And it's the same handle on both platforms. So those are the best places to kind of look out for information about the next summit and some different things, some exciting things that we're kind of working on.
0: Thank you so much for coming on today, Lukoho. Thank you so much, Christine, for having me. And just a side note, Christine, you've been amazing. (laughs)
1: I'm super excited to like hear this podcast come out also to, you know, tune into other episodes and the work that you're doing. So looking forward to supporting
0: your platform even more. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening thank you for your support please be sure to leave us a review that will be very beneficial it will help put this podcast on the map so others can find it be sure to check us out on instagram at Africansheel. check out our website at africansheal.com share this episode with a friend and be sure to tune in next week you do not want to miss it